Stand with me this morning as we read from Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. Last week we saw Abra- uh, uh, this angel named Gabriel visiting Zechariah the priest and telling him he is going to be a father. His wife, who is way, way, way too old to be having a child, will be having a child. And this week we're going to see the same angel deliver a similar announcement. Um, the differences are kind of interesting. The similarities are kind of interesting, but all of them leading us to a truth that I believe will change your life because this is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. So read with me from Luke chapter one. We'll read verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from them. Pray with me. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that it would not be a word merely two millennia old that doesn't have anything to say to us, because that's not how you speak. You don't speak in ways that become obsolete. Your word is eternal through all generations. Your word is just as applicable today as it was when it was first spoken, first written, first heard and read. So, Father, we pray that your words would do what your words do, not return void, but as you promise, do what you set them out to do. Father, soften our hearts to hear you this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we see last week this angel Gabriel. He comes to Zechariah. He comes to a priest. And really, if you think about it, this is where you expect to see the angel of God. He is in the temple of God speaking to the priest of God. Isn't that really what you would expect God to do? I mean, this is the order. This is the setup. This is the way it's supposed to be. God's people, God's representatives among his people, worshiping God in his place, hear from God directly. That's what it's supposed to be. But we don't have a God that only speaks to priests in the temple. We don't have a God that only speaks to the spiritually high up. The ones who are ordained, the ones who are, who are somehow magnified because of their holiness or because of their position within the church. We have a God who speaks to ordinary people. And that's what's so fascinating about this story is that God comes to this ordinary girl named Mary. Well, all we know about Mary, well, 
Well, let's read it again. Look back in verse 26. In the sixth month, um, I don't know whether he's talking about the sixth month of the year or the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Um, But in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth is in the northern part. If you're looking at a map of Israel, uh, in fact, take some time this afternoon, look at the map of Israel in the back of your Bible. Um, you've got the Dead Sea along the bottom. There's this little Jordan River that goes up to the Sea of Galilee. That, that's the region you're in. You're fairly close to the Sea of Galilee in the far northern reaches of Israel. This would be a far cry from Bethlehem. Don't worry, God's got that covered. But this would be a far cry from the religious institution in Jerusalem, the temple where Zechariah was. This is an ordinary town in an ordinary place. There's nothing special about Nazareth. In fact, there was a saying the rabbis used to have, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, it turns out yes. (laughs) But we'll get there. Hang with me. So he goes up to Nazareth, verse 24, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. About all we know about Mary is that she's a virgin who is engaged to be married. The betrothal period would last about a year in those days, and during that year it would be a busy time. His job, he was a carpenter, so his job would not only be to be building things for other people, but when he could spare the time, when he could steal away a little bit of time, he'd be working on a house for them too. It was very common in those days for the man to build the house or repair the house that they would eventually move into upon marriage. So he would be getting the house ready. She would be learning from from other women, from her mama and her grandmama, and her her relatives would be would be kind of showing her what it what you need to do. She had been training for this for a while, but but you know, in those days to come, when when marriage is close at hand, man, there's a lot of stuff to get together, isn't there? And so she's doing all this and she's learning all these things and she's trying to prepare for a, for a life just like any other woman would have lived, just like any other wife would have lived. She's just an ordinary person. Nothing special. There's nothing, there's nothing about Mary that screams highly favored of God. But that's exactly what the angel said she was. In verse 28, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, show of hands, how many of, how many of you would love for an angel to appear to you and say, greetings favored one, the Lord is with you? Yeah. After you got over the initial shock of the angel being there, right? This is a great greeting, but it's a, com- well, it's kind of interesting because there's no sign that she's really favored. She's ordinary, just just normal girl, nothing, no special. In fact, he doesn't even, like, when when he's talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, when Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he makes a point to tell us that they are Levites, that they are, that they are a son and daughter of Aaron, that they belong to the priesthood, and not only do they belong to the priesthood, but they're known for their piety, they're known for their holiness, they're known for walking with God, they have the reputation I mean, these are the people that should hear from God, right? These are the people that you expect God to come to in a vision and to deliver good news, to deliver news that they were going to have a son, even though they're way too old for it. These are the kind of people you would expect God to speak to. But Mary, we we don't have that. We don't know that she's holy. We don't know that she is well-known for her walk with God. We don't know that. 
Maybe she was. Luke doesn't tell us that. I think in Luke's mind, there's nothing special about Mary. Except God seems to think there is. This this word, favored one, it's in my favorite tense. It's in the perfect tense. Now, perfect tense. I've told you this before, but that's okay. I'll tell you again because I'm just that kind of a guy. The perfect tense is something that's already been done, but the effects keep going on. So when Jesus is on the cross and and he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. That's a perfect tense. The work that I've done has been completed on this cross, but the effects will go on forever and ever and ever. It's this same kind of tense that he uses here when he calls Mary the favored one. It's perfect tense. Not only does she earn favor, it's also passive. She receives favor. And it's a favor that lasts forever and ever and ever. It's not a favor that that just, okay, all right, I'm happy with you today, but tomorrow might be a different story. It's not that kind of thing. It's something that lasts, something that has an ongoing impact. But it's something that's already been completed. I have already found you favorable. And by the way, you know that that word for favor? We have another word for that in English. Grace. That amazing grace that we just sang about a few minutes ago. It's that same thing God says of Mary. You might say it a little bit older way. God has smiled upon her. The Lord is with you. Wait, wait, what's that name? That Isaiah says of the Messiah, his name shall be called Emmanuel. What what does that mean again? God with us. Mary gets to be, Mary gets to be one of the first to hear the good news that God is with us. But but there's nothing special about Mary. (laughs) She's just an ordinary girl. At least that's what she looks like. But not to God. Can I tell you something? You may not think there's anything special about you, and you might be right in earthly terms. You may not be particularly good looking like my wife is. You may not, you may not have any special talents that that you know of, or you may not, there may not be anything special about you that you can see. That doesn't mean there's nothing special about you. I wonder how many of us that God, if he was to speak a word to us this morning, would say, you're favored too. I like you. As as Savannah would say, I like you. I wonder how many of us God would say, you found favor with me. I'm with you. So nothing special about Mary except that God finds her special. And if God finds her special, that's good enough. But she she does what we often do. Look at verse 29. uh, But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this would be. Anybody have a hard time taking good news? Like you hear good news and you just don't want to believe it. Come on. You can raise your hand. It's okay. It's all right. I am so much like this. Well, that's, wait a minute, favored? God is with me. Hold on a second. What what exactly are you trying to say? I don't get this. This word for troubled is not the same word that Zechariah was troubled. Zechariah was troubled. He was shaking in his boots, shaking down to the core. He was terrified. He was fearful. Not Mary. Now, some of you women might say this is how it goes, that, that women aren't afraid. Women are that they're, y'all are stronger and tougher. And, oh, okay, maybe that's true. 
But Mary's reaction is very different from Zacharias. Zacharias is one of fear. Her reaction, that greatly troubled, is the word for perplexed, confused. He doesn't understand it. He's trying to wrap her head around what's going on. Wait, 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 wait. So Zachariah is freaking out because of this angel that appears to him. But Mary is trying to understand and parse the words that he's saying. Whereas he is afraid because of the presence of the angel. She is worried because she doesn't get what the angel's trying to tell her. And boy, this is just like us. We take good news and turn it into something confusing. It's so simple. It's so easy. God's with you. How much better can it get than that? And we get confused. We get perplexed. His greeting throws Mary for a loop. I don't understand. What do you mean? She tries to discern what he means. She tries to to nitpick every detail to, to figure out the puzzle of what he's talking about. Mary, it's right there. God likes you. You found favor with God. Don't 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 question it. Just go with it. But that's what we do. I can picture, um, I can imagine her. <laughs> Have you ever had something really great happen and you can't believe it's happened? And, and you're just like, you, you don't even know how to respond. That, that, that's what I picture of her. Like she can't even process what's going on. There's a little bit of irony here. The, the professional, the priest, scared to death. But Mary's trying to figure it out. <laughs> Verse 30, the angel responds to her. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Yeah, that's easy for him to say, right? Don't be afraid. You're just, you're an angel. We don't see angels all the time. It's easy to get scared. He's wondering what in, what in the world is going on. He says, don't worry about it. You have found favor with God. God's given you grace. God given you grace. Don't try to figure it out. I'm not saying it's not good to think about it and ponder over it to see how it's affected you and how it could affect you even more. No, those are good things to do. But quit trying to parse every aspect of grace as though it's as though it's a puzzle to put together and just live in it. Experience it. Let it wash over you. See how it saved a wretch like you. Look at what grace has done. But quit trying to figure out how it works. It's like mama's kiss making everything better it's not a scientific explanation mamas are just that awesome just don't worry about it it works go with it same is true with grace quit trying to figure out how god is doing what he's doing mary doesn't get it she she still asks how verse 31 and behold or uh, the the angel excuse me is is telling her about the son I'm getting a little ahead of myself. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Jesus. Jesus comes from Yeshua. It means God saves. This is not just his name. It is his descriptor. A name is more than a name oftentimes in Scripture, and especially when an angel tells you to name a kid something, there is a reason that you're naming that kid something. This kid is going to be called Jesus because that's what he's going to do. He is the method by which God will save his people. And so his name ought to fit that description. His name ought to fit that mission. And so his name becomes Jesus. It's amazing how often names combine in with who that person is. That's why it would be terrible to be named Jabez. If you remember, there's a, there's a guy in, I believe, First Chronicles who is named Jabez. 
And all we know about Jabez is that he's called Jabez and he asked God to bless him and enlarge his territory that God would be with him. And it's this short little spurt in all of these genealogies. He's going, this guy begat this guy and this guy begat this guy and this guy begat this guy. And and this guy, Jabez, let me tell you about the prayer he prayed. And now he begat this guy and, and, and then it just keeps on going. Jabez means pain. How would you like to be called pain? Um, Hosea has, has a wife who cheats on him. And the first, first child is probably his. Second child might or might not be his. The third child is almost definitely not his. And some of his, his kids have names like not my people, not loved. How would you like to be named those things? Names are more than just names. They're oftentimes they show you who that person is. But it still works today. It still works today. You could hear or know a certain type of person and a name seems to come up with it, right? When you think of a Robert, you think of a certain idea. Don't worry, it's not bad. Not completely, at least. When you think, when you think of certain names, I, I'll give you, I'll give you a name. How many young girls do you know of named, um, Edna? Edna just sounds old. Maybe that's because all the Ednas I've known of have been old. I don't know. But it just sounds like an old name. It doesn't sound like a young name, does it? There are certain images that come to our mind. And when, when they hear the name Jesus, they're going to think of that image of God saving. That's the image that's going to come to mind. And that's for a purpose. That's for a reason. Because God is going to save and He's going to use this child to do it. So He says His name will be Jesus. He will be great. Same thing that He says about John. He will be great. But then watch this. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He's not just great. He is the Son of the Most High. The Most Great. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This was a child that had been promised from ages and ages ago in Genesis chapter 3, right after the sin. The, the, the apple or the, the fruit has not even rotted yet from the bite taken out of it. And God makes this promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the snake, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What he's saying is, you are going to bite his foot, but he is going to crush your head. This promise is the very beginning of the promise of God to save his people from their sins. It's a promise that would be repeated and grown and developed all throughout the Old Testament. When you come to the time of David, you have David being promised by God that I am going to give your heirs this throne and one of your heirs will never cease to sit on this throne as long as you're faithful to me. And what's interesting is he doesn't even really put as long as you're faithful to me on it. It's an understood thing that we have to be faithful to maintain this throne. They're not faithful. God allows the Babylonians, God allows the Assyrians to sweep over Israel and over Judah and take them over and remove them from kingship. And to this day, there has yet to be one sit on the throne of David to rule over Israel the way that God has promised. But we know because of who it is that's making the promise that there will one day be that one. And this is the one. I'm giving the throne of David to this son 
of yours, Mary, and he will reign forever. There's no, there's no about this with God. He's set in stone. This is his plan. This is his promise, and he will do it. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. If you want proof of that, you can turn to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and you can read the kingdom being established and being eternal. It's great when you know the end of the story. (laughs) Doesn't help with the bumps sometimes, but it does make them a little easier to, to go over. That offspring that would bruise the serpent's head is the Messiah. This ordinary young woman would give birth to God's greatest gift. Can you imagine what she's going through at this point? Well, we don't have to imagine. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be? The English it's rendered, since I am a virgin. The Greek says more like, since I've never known a man. I don't know a man. How, how, can, how can this happen? All right, let's, let's look at impossibilities for just a second. Zachariah and Elizabeth are too old to have children. Just like Sarah was too old to have a child. And yet, she's going to have one. It's on the way. We're about to read in just a second, the angel's going to tell Mary that she's in her sixth month. The woman who was barren ain't barren anymore. And Mary's, Mary doesn't know this yet. What she sees is, is this is impossible. How can this possibly happen? She's doing exactly what we do. God makes a promise and we want to question it. How? How is this going to happen? I don't understand. I don't see how it's going to go. I don't, I, I don't get what you're doing. I can't put the pieces together. I don't quite see it. We're, we're, we're having our bathroom redone from, from the water damage. And, um, there are a couple things that, that I was told about and I, I, I didn't really know about it. And I was told. It's a quote, direct quote. Just trust me, when you see it, you'll love it. I imagine God is doing this kind of thing with Mary. She can't see it. She can't, she can't wrap her mind around it. She's trying to picture it in her head. How am I going to have a son? I mean, I'm betrothed, but, but we're, we're a ways off. How am I going to have a son? How am I going to have a son that will save his people? How am I going to have the son of the most high? That doesn't make any sense. Joseph ain't the most high. And I tell him that. Just read between the lines there. How, how am I going to have a son who will reign over Israel when I'm just an ordinary girl? It doesn't make sense. Verse 35, and the angel answered her. I love this because when Zechariah questioned the angel, he wanted proof. Mary, I don't think Mary's as interested in proof as in understanding. I don't understand. The priest, the priest says, how can I believe you? But the ordinary girl says, how are you going to make this work? So she doesn't get muted like the priest does. In fact, he actually answers the question. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, whose son you're going to deliver, by the way, will overshadow you. This reminded me of Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of his wings. It reminded me of this idea of of living so closely in God's presence that that his wings will overshadow you. And it doesn't mean that he protects you from all kinds of harm. It means that he protects you from the kind of harm. 
that they may they may hit you, they may beat you, they may they may torture you, they may persecute you, they may kill you, but you're still safe with me because they cannot get what matters even more than your body, and that is your soul. They cannot get to you because of me. And oh, they may try. And oh, they may do lots of physical damage to you. But you are under my wing. You are within my shadow. Here you are safe. God says to Mary, come close. Let me put my wing over you. Let me shadow you. Let me, let me rest upon you so that you may rest. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And then he gives proof. This is how I'm going to do it. And here's how you know what I'm saying is true. You know that relative of yours, Elizabeth, who who was barren and way too old? Verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Remember last week we talked about the fact that so many of us feel barren. We feel barren in our lives because it just seems like nothing we can do will work. Nothing that we try seems to get us closer to God or we, we feel like our prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. And the promise for us is that God is the one who takes the barren and brings it to life. God is the one who takes something dried up and makes it live, makes it vibrant. This is something similar that God is doing in the life of Mary. He's taking someone who has no reason to expect anything. There's nothing about Mary that makes her stand out except that God favors her. And because God favors her, he's going to do his work in her. And what's so amazing about Mary is that when God simply tells her, just follow me, just trust me, it's exactly what she does. Look down in verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. All right, I'll follow you. She doesn't understand. We often don't understand, but that's okay. Yeah, she has her questions, but she's willing to obey. And that's why God favors Mary. Are you willing? Maybe you're confused, perplexed by what he wants you to do. Maybe you're troubled by what it'll mean. Maybe maybe you just don't know how God's going to work it out. You might have noticed I skipped a verse. I did that on purpose because when you're writing narrative, sometimes, sometimes you sneak in the most important part into the story so that when the whole story comes together, that part just stands out. That's what Luke has done here. He's he's hidden. He's hidden the nugget, the most important part of the story, the words that I believe have the power to completely transform your life. Yes, the what happens with Mary is important. Yes, the son that's going to be born to her is the way that that transformation happens. But there's a truth in this passage that transcends even just the story, that transcends the entire Bible, that everything that we have in our scriptures, everything that we have in our experience, all leads us to this truth. And if we'll understand this truth, then we will be willing to follow God no matter what. We will be willing to do whatever he says, even when we don't understand, even when we don't want to, even when we can't explain how it's going to happen or we're confused or we're troubled or, or we just don't know how to react. We will be willing to trust God and follow him if we understand this one verse. And it's verse 37. For with God, 
Nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, let me explain why that is so crucial. Because nothing is impossible with God. It's not something hidden down deep. It's not something that you've got to meditate on for hours and hours on end until you finally get that breakthrough. If you will understand that nothing is impossible with God, your confusion will not matter. I'm an inquiring mind. Inquiring minds want to know, right? I want to understand I want to know why I'm doing something. I don't care what it is so much as why. Why should I do it this way? What's the advantage of doing it another way? Is there another way that's better? I want to understand. I want to know. But because I know that nothing is impossible with God, it doesn't matter if I understand. It doesn't matter if I can comprehend it. It doesn't matter if it's all laid out before me. I can trust that God knows because nothing's impossible. You see, the, the, the problem we run into is that we want to be self-sufficient. We want to, we want to, we want to be able to rely on ourselves. We want to be able to trust ourselves. We want to be able to do what we say and follow the way that we think is right. We want to be enough. The problem is we can't be enough. Anybody, anybody with me on that one? Yeah, we cannot be enough. God says, you don't have to be. I am. And because he is enough, because his grace is sufficient, because nothing is impossible with him. You see, I need someone who can supersede my boundaries. I need someone who can overcome my expectations, who isn't limited by my shortcomings, my subjection to the laws of nature or anything else. I need someone who isn't confused, who isn't troubled by the unknown because he has no unknown. I need someone who can do the impossible, not for my physical benefit, though it would be nice if he'd do some of that sometimes. But I need someone who, who, who doesn't just, who isn't just about putting money in my bank account or making life easy for me. I need someone who can do what is to my eternal benefit. One who could deal with the sin that lies deep within my heart, within my soul. So do you. See, we all have this deep, deep abiding nature, this, this human nature that is wretched to the core. And if it's not for amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, I couldn't be saved. But God found favor. God put grace on me. Not because of what I've done, but because of who He is. And so the only thing I can do in response is know that if he can save a wretch like me, there is nothing that he cannot do. And so I must trust him. I have, it's, it's, it's so compelling to me that he can do anything. I don't need to be able. I don't need to be enough because he is enough. I just simply put my faith in him. And because I can put my faith in him, I can be willing to say, I don't understand this, but I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Because nothing is impossible with God, I'm willing to do what He calls me to do. That's life-changing. What about you? What about you? Are you willing? Don't mind if you're confused. Don't mind if you don't understand it all. Are you willing? Will you trust Him? Do you really believe nothing's impossible with God? Then don't hold back. Father, this is your time. You have given us this earth-shattering truth that nothing's impossible with you. And though... We, we might say it, sometimes it's hard for us to believe it. 
And sometimes it's hard for us to act on that. It's too easy to try to rely on ourselves. That's why, that's why in the Proverbs you say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because we keep trying to lean. Like we keep, we keep trying to make ourselves enough. We treat, keep trying to, to rest on the things that we can touch and we can see and we can feel and we can know. But God, you call us to a faith that's based on knowledge of you. And we may not know anything else. We may not know exactly how things are going to work out. We may not know exactly what you have in store for us. In a world where everything changes, seemingly at the speed of light, we know we could trust you. Father, help us trust you. Help us give you everything. And Lord, help us not take it back as soon as we're done praying. Help us let it go and put all of our trust in you. Willingly follow whatever you tell us to do, whether it makes sense or not, whether it's unclear exactly what you're going to do through it. Help us trust you because nothing's impossible with you. In this time of invitation, Lord, you invite us to come. Help us put our trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The altar is going to be open if you need to pray. I'm going to be up here at the front if you need to talk to someone. You do what God wants you to do. You be willing because nothing's impossible with him.